This morning we are continuing in our uh, series in First Peter. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Did you guys get note sheets that have the scriptures on them and everything? Okay, good. Uh, so for several weeks we've been in a sermon series in First Peter uh, where we've been talking about being strangers and exiles on this earth. And, and today is no different, but um, I, want, I, I believe that the text we have for today draws a bit of a line in the sand uh, for us that Peter's been building up to. And that line, I believe, is a call to purity of thought, a call to place our absolute starting point or foundation uh, as a devotion to Jesus Christ, and that that devotion to him, it, it surpasses everything else, that Christ would reign supreme in every aspect uh, of our lives, beginning with the way we think, then rightly followed by the way we live our lives from day to day in every circumstance, whether it be joyous or sad, whether it be pleasant or dreadful, peaceful or painful. We all know that those, those things exist. And if you'll remember, Peter opened this letter by addressing his Christian readers as elect, chosen exiles who had been dispersed over a large geographical area. They are, they're in a time of great persecution and suffering because they've been identified with Jesus Christ. And Peter made it clear in the opening chapter that, that if you are a Christian, God has caused you to be born again to a living hope, and that is reason for rejoicing. And he made it clear that God had called them to, to uh, a holy life and to live holy lives. That is, lives that are set apart to God okay, and marked by righteousness. In the second chapter, he said that Christians are a chosen race and a royal priesthood. And God, in his mercy, has made for himself a people for his own possession for the purpose of proclaiming his excellencies to the world. He went on in, chapter, in that chapter to write about how Christians are to live in relation to governing authorities as well as in relation to our, in our day, our employers. In their day, it would have been their, called their masters. In, in relation to husbands and wives, etc. And all of this to be understood in the context of suffering attached to the Christian life. And under the banner of people, uh, of us being a people who submit themselves to others. As Brandon preached about last week. Peter's stated benchmark of suffering was our Lord Jesus Christ. Regarding suffering as Christians, Peter made it clear why we do so. In 1 Peter 2.21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And this is an example of the right way to suffer. Not just suffering to suffer. There's, there's a reason, there's a point behind it. And you see, uh, his readers are suffering, as Peter writes this letter. They're suffering great persecution. He's saying that, that that's what God has called you to endure for his sake. Why? Because Christ suffered for them. And we should all be able to agree that the suffering of Christ for sinners is far beyond anything we could ever truly fathom how much Christ suffered for us. So what has all this instruction from Peter been leading up to, what we've been doing the last several weeks? Uh, what is he getting at? 
Better yet, what is the relationship between Christian suffering and being strangers and exiles? And I think we'll see in our text today, not just what this meant for the Christians in Peter's day, but what it means for us today. They were strangers and exiles on a level that most of us will not experience what they went through. But we're no less called to respond according to the word of God, to suffering. So let's look at our passage for today. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 13. We're going to go through verse 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake. Whoops, I'm sorry, wrong chapter. That was 2. I've already done that. Chapter 3, verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. <clears throat> Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let's pray for our service this morning. Father in heaven, thank you uh, for this time of scripture reading. We thank you for this passage that Peter uh, wrote down so long ago to instruct the people in his day, Lord, but how you have carried it forward in time and preserved it for the instruction of your people today. And I pray, Father, that you would teach us uh, what it means to suffer for Christ, what it means to be strangers in this world. I pray, Father, that you would help us to agree with you, that you would quicken our hearts, Lord, to understand, to desire to follow you and be obedient. And we praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so the title for my sermon today, if you have those sheets, you can probably see it there, is Stand Out, Don't Fit In. And I, I have to be honest with you where that title came from. I was discussing my thoughts on the sermon with my wife yesterday, and she happened to have just looked at the back of her shampoo bottle and then tells me, it's like what my shampoo bottle says. Stand out, don't fit in. As I looked at the bottles more closely later, and not only the shampoo bottle, but the conditioner bottle as well, I noticed not only did they both have the same slogan on them, but underneath it, they each had what was called uh, Urban Antidote Number 3. Okay, Urban Antidote Number 3 on the shampoo bottle says, Admitting is the first step. Face it, your hair needs some rehab. Let the hydration therapy begin. Bring weak and brittle hair back to life with this powerful, moisture-packed shampoo. Making a comeback has never been so easy. Well, then, Urban Antidote number three on the conditioner bottle says, Admitting is the first step. Bring dead-end hair back to life once and for all. Formula targets areas in most need of repair, giving your whacked-out hair the resurrection it has been waiting for. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> Apparently, this applies somehow to standing out and not fitting in, okay? Now, I don't, I don't know. This is all sort of confusing because my shampoo bottle just says shampoo. Okay? It doesn't have all the extra stuff. Um, 
Anyway, I thought I would tell you where I got that title because it's the first time I've been inspired by shampoo. So, But it got me to thinking about what the world means when it says and when it encourages people to stand out and not fit in. And I thought about how our culture has encouraged people for decades now to be unique, uh, to stand out in the sense of how you look, uh, what you wear, what products you buy, how you, how you do your hair, how you paint your hair these days, uh, or what tattoos you have. We celebrate and promote the expression of individuality. And we want to be who we want to be, and everyone else should marvel at what they see. Right? Our, our culture worships the idol of self-empowerment and self-promotion. But I want to tell you, Christian, we are not to be about self-promotion. We are not supposed to be unique individuals for the sake of being unique individuals. We are to be conformists. Biblically speaking, we are to be imitators. First, imitators of God himself. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. And then, imitators of those who imitate well. Paul also says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, in 1 Corinthians 11, 1. So let's be honest. Imitating Christ and imitating those who imitate Christ well is really what makes us strangers in this world, does it not? A Christian imitating Christ sticks out like a sore thumb in this world system. So I want to talk about three things that Peter wrote about here in our passage today um, that make us strangers in this world. And before I get to those three things, I want to make it clear that God is the one who first makes a person a stranger when he saves them. This is a world of sin and death and destruction and condemnation. A world of darkness, a life of darkness, a mindset of darkness. But the believer, Peter said, has been called out of darkness and into light. Okay, not into physical light. This is about understanding and knowledge. This is about the truth. Christians have been brought by Christ out of their former darkness of understanding to what Peter calls God's marvelous light. That is to say, Christians have been brought to an understanding of the truth by the grace and mercy of our great God and King and to salvation through Jesus Christ. And this makes a person a stranger to the world and the world a stranger to them. Prior to salvation, a person fits right in with the world. And now they don't. And they need help to live out their new identity in practical ways. The natural man lives for himself, to please himself, and rejects instruction about how to live. But the new Christian needs help. Why? Well, he came out of darkness. He's now alive. He needs to know how to live. And he now wants to know what God thinks about it. Peter has been giving all these instructions on how to live because truly living for the Christian is a new thing. It's like seeing for the first time. Man thinks he's living, but the scriptures are clear that man is dead in his trespasses and sins. 
Man needs to be made alive. It's interesting that normally we go from being a stranger to knowing people. But becoming a Christian makes you a stranger to what you once knew. That is why the Christian needs to be taught, needs to be told how to truly live his or her new life in Christ. And that's what we've been seeing Peter do through this book. So Christians are strangers because God made them so by causing them to be born again. But Christians are also made strangers in uh, practical ways by the way they live their lives every day. As I said, there are three things in this passage that Peter uses to identify um, a true Christian as a stranger. We are strangers because we embrace what is good. We're strangers because we have uncommon hope. And we are strangers because we have a good conscience. So first point, we embrace what is good. Christians embrace what is good. Look at our passage here in 1 Peter 3, verses 13 and 14. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. So verse 13 is a rhetorical question from Peter. Who is there to harm you? The answer is no one. No one is there to harm you. There's no one who can do that. But wait, why are we talking about someone harming us? We, weren't we just talking about husbands and wives last week? How did we get here? But this verse is not just dropped in here out of the blue with some sort of motivational speech from Peter with no context. Okay? After, after talking about husbands and wives, as you remember last week, Peter started talking about harm in verse 9 uh, of this chapter when he said not to repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. The indication is there is that there is evil being done. There is reviling going on. He goes on to talk about turning away from evil to do good because, verse 12, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The implication there, and here in verse 13 in our passage, is that there are those who are evil, who will do evil, who will sometimes try to harm the righteous. The righteous here is a reference to Christians who are made righteous in Christ. They are those who embrace what is good. Peter says they cannot harm you if you are zealous for what is good. The idea of being zealous here speaks of a person with great enthusiasm, okay, a burning intensity for a specific cause, and in this case, for what is good. If you think about that for a minute, does that describe you as a Christian? A burning intensity for what is good. We should notice that Peter doesn't say for doing good. And I don't bring this point up to say Peter's against Christians doing good. That's not, that's not the point. But this is uh, more than doing good. He says, for what is good. It's not just that you would do good, but that you would pursue the good. What is good in the biblical sense, is what God says is good. Here is where we begin to see this line in the sand. And for the most part, the world can tolerate your profession of faith in Christ. But the world is increasingly hostile 
to the biblical view of what is good. Okay, but when you, you hold to the wor- word of Christ, and by God's grace, we, we live according to the word of Christ, holding biblical moral convictions in a culture that's hostile to biblical moral convictions, you're going to be a stranger. Okay, last week, Brandon mentioned that it's uncomfortable to talk about wives submitting to husbands. He was acknowledging that there is this tension there in our culture and in our thinking. Why is that? There are many areas of tension when we read the Scriptures. God says that women are not to teach or have authority over men in the church. God says Christians are to confront one another over our sin. Really, God says marriage is between a man and a woman. God says he created male and female. There are two genders. God says all liars will have their part in the lake of fire. God says if you're unjustly angry with someone, you've committed murder. God says if you look at another person with lust, you've committed adultery. And God says homosexuality is a sin. And the list goes on and on. You can feel the tension. Right? We live in this culture. We can feel that tension. We know why there's tension when the world hears these things. Why? Because they don't agree with God. But how do we explain the tension that Christians feel over these things? Why would a person who professes to be a Christian feel tension here? Well, there are only two reasons I can think of. One, because it makes you a stranger to the world and open to ridicule and mockery, accusations, hatred, and violence. Okay? There, there is fear there. It is hard to be a stranger sometimes. And the second reason I can think of is because, like the world, you disagree with God. Those are the only two I can think of. We fear the fact that to hold to what God says is good makes us a stranger in this world, and we don't like it. We're at war within because we know that the world thinks different. Christians can agree with God and what he says and what he said and still recognize that it's hard to live it out in this world. To recognize the reality of the difficulty and the cost of being a stranger because of Christ is not the same as disagreeing with God. If you could express it to God in a prayer, it might sound like this. God, I agree with your word. I believe you because you are God, and you are right, and what you say is good is good, and what you say is evil is evil, but it's hard to be in this world and hold to your standard. Help me to remain faithful to you, Lord. But that's different than disagreeing with God. We can acknowledge that it's hard to hold to God's standard. We should not disagree with God. Peter says, there's no one that can harm you if, you're intensely, if you intensely pursue what God says is good. Well, wait, what about John the Baptist? He tried to hold Herod to a godly standard and was thrown in prison and then beheaded. That was harm. What about all the Christian martyrs during the Reformation who were burned at the stake for their commitment to God's biblical standards? What about all the Christians around the world today who suffer harm? 
The book of Hebrews says that those who were faithful to God were tortured, mocked, flogged, chained, and imprisoned. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. That sounds like harm. How can Peter say that no one can harm you? Well, he's not talking about physical harm. This is where we need to have knowledge. He's not talking about physical harm. Man can do all kinds of things to harm the body. We know this from looking at history. We know this from our own lives. But man cannot harm or change or undo or take away your eternal life in Jesus Christ. Peter's point here is that when Christians do what is good and are zealous for what is good, it's not the norm that you will suffer for it. Even the unbelieving world appreciates a Christian doing good. But it, it will happen when what is good according to God conflicts with what is good according to man. And that's why he says in our passage, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Peter says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But that's the problem. Right? There is fear, and we are often troubled. The question is, what do you and I do with that fear? Do I begin to agree with the world that God is wrong? Well, we mustn't do that. Given the choice of who might be wrong, can I just suggest to you that it's not God? God is not wrong. James 4.4 4 says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Okay, enmity with God means that you are actively opposed to Him. That is the world and our culture. Will you also be actively opposed to God? Embracing what is evil because you've been deceived by the empty philosophy of the world into thinking that God didn't really mean what he said there. That was for then, it's not for now. Whatever the lies are that, that come our way. You can make yourself a stranger to the world every day by, by openly holding a biblical standard on the issues I brought up earlier. And that's just a few of the most debated ones in our culture now. They are hot-button issues. How can we begin to hold a, to a biblical standard? How can I ensure that I agree with God so that I don't have to fear? We look at the next verse for the answer. And instead of an urban antidote, like I read about the shampoo uh, for hair problems, Peter's really giving the biblical antidote to fear and an and unbelief problem. Let's look at verse 15. He says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. When Peter says, in your hearts, he says, but in your hearts honor Christ, he's talking about the inner man. He's making a contrast between mere talk or lip service about how I'm a Christ follower. And he's, and he's truly setting 
talking about truly setting Christ as of first importance in your life. Deciding in your heart that that is true and I will follow Christ. That you believe him above the deceptions of the world. That you trust him alone for what is good and right and true. He receives all of our affection and we submit to him completely in everything. That is what it is to honor Christ the Lord in our hearts as holy. To honor Christ as holy is to want to read his word. We want to know his word. We want to obey his word because it is what makes us wise. To know the word of Christ and settle on it will inform the thinking of believers in times of suffering. It prepares us. This is important because that's what removes fear. When our minds are filled with the truth of the word of God, it removes fear in times of suffering. How? Because we're reminded of the promises of God for his children. For those who are in Christ. It goes to what Peter said about being blessed earlier. Peter speaks about this blessing later in chapter 5 in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 5, 10. He says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to this eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's a blessing that we have to look forward to. See, this isn't about feelings. It's about knowledge. This isn't about what is temporary, but about what is eternal. God will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's a blessing that every believer can hope for and hope in, and therefore have joy, not only in the future, but joy today. Because of God's promises. The next thing that makes us strangers. The second point is we have uncommon hope. Okay, we have uncommon hope. Looking again at verse 15. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. The rest of this verse also implies that there's something about you that is strange to the world okay, as a Christian, but that there, is, there are some who will be also drawn to ask you about it. This implies that a person will see some fruit in your life, indicative of a Christian. And here, here uh, the subject is Christian hope. That's, that's the, the subject of this. That's what brings about the question. They recognize in you a hope that is uncommon. And the goal of suffering for righteousness' sake, in addition to our sanctification, is the witness it provides. Okay, unlike Christ, our suffering cannot save, right? but it can point the sufferer to the sufferer that did. It, it can point to Christ when we suffer as Christ suffered. This hope being referred to is not just a general hope, this is the hope of the gospel, okay? the, the hope of someone whose sins have been forgiven and who knows they are eternally secure in the Father's hands. And no matter what happens to their body on earth, nothing can change that. That's what this hope is. That's what somebody's recognizing in, in this person in the midst of suffering. That is a freedom-inducing hope. And it becomes evident 
to others, when we respond to suffering like people who uh, have something else, something eternal and blessed to look forward to, a hope that removes all fear. When was the last time someone asked you about the hope that you have within you? Have they ever? Do you profess faith in Christ yet lack hope? What are you not believing about God? What are you not believing about what he has promised to those who are in Christ? Again, this is about knowledge. We should know that the fact of having hope that is seen by unbelievers does not give them knowledge. Okay, they can see hope in us. That doesn't equate knowledge for them. The way we live is not the gospel. We must follow up the righteous living with a testimony, a testimony of the good news. That's why, why Peter is talking about being ready with an answer. That is a verbal argument or defense for what is visible to the unbeliever. People might say I, things like this, I, I just live the gospel. Well, that's not what we're called to. We're called to proclaim the gospel. Yes, we are to live a life worthy of the gospel. It gives evidence of us being a believer, but we are called to proclaim to people why. Why are you this way? Why can you live this way? This is a God-given opportunity to share with the one who's asking, to give the reason for what they see. And that reason is never that we are just a strong person, but that Christ is the propitiation for our sins and has given us eternal life through repentance and faith in his work on the cross. This is the prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesian believers, that they would know this kind of hope. That they would have, according to Ephesians 1.18, the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? That is what we want to share with those who ask about the reason for our hope. Peter says to do this with gentleness and respect. To share the truth of the gospel with people is hard because people do not want to be told they're sinners. Right? They, they certainly don't want to be told they're destined for hell because of their unbelief and rejection of Christ. Well, that makes you a stranger with that message. Okay, we're, we're to respond with gentleness and respect. We are to be bold in our proclamation, but not arrogant. The world, and increasingly, sadly, Christians believe that to stand on a foundation of biblical doctrine is arrogant. Right? They say that to claim to know what the Bible says about a topic is arrogant and presumptuous. Is it, though? What does the Bible say about that? Here again, we see what it means to be strangers in this world, and sometimes strangers in the church. We can stand on the truth without being a jerk, but we must stand, especially when we share the way of salvation according to the word of God. God didn't give us his word so we could not understand it. Okay, being gentle and respectful does not mean we agree with the world that there are other ways of salvation. Okay, we live in a culture where to disagree with someone means you hate them, right? And that's not true. Being gentle means that we share, remembering we, are, we were once lost and needed a Savior. 
that we share in humility, all, uh, that all our hope is in Christ and not in our own self-righteous deeds, but we share the hard truth, trusting God for the convicting word, um, for the convicting work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And notice that Peter said it was the hope that was with, within them, okay? That is where the hope originates. The Holy Spirit indwells every believer doing the work that we just heard Paul praying for, continually enlightening our minds to the truth. That's what the Holy Spirit does in, in the hearts of every believer. Renewing our minds in the knowledge of our salvation is the key to possession of a good conscience. And this brings us to the final point for today, that we're strangers in this world because we have a good conscience. Look in our passage, 1 Peter 3, 16 and 17. Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. The Bible says that the conscience either accuses people or excuses people in their actions. And God has placed the conscience in every person. Paul wrote about even the Gentiles who did not receive the law of God, like the Jews, and they had a conscience. In Romans 2.15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And the point that Peter is making, uh, though, to the Christians he's writing to, is that through their faith in Christ, they have hope. They do not have to fear persecution or suffering. They do not have to fear the condemnation of an evil conscience. Why? How is that possible that we could not have to fear the condemnation of our evil conscience? Again, because of the knowledge of the forgiveness of sins. The author of Hebrews writes in chapter 9, verse 14, How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And again, in Hebrews 10, 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's how. That's how we can have that belief. God says we can have that belief through faith in Christ. We can draw near in full assurance. Our hearts have been sprinkled clean from that evil conscience. The world cannot have a clean conscience. Not really. They, they can convince themselves they're not guilty, but what they're doing is using their own standard for measurement, comparing themselves to fallen man instead of a righteous and holy God. This good conscience that we have is also a weapon against fear. Specifically in the face of slander of those who revile or are abusive in their treatment of believers. This is a mockery of Christians who are strangers to them because of the biblical morals and conduct they live by. A good conscience frees you from the guilt and condemnation of your sin 
because you remember that Christ took your punishment on himself. He already satisfied the wrath of God for you. That was meant for you. And what these people are reviling, according to Peter, is your good behavior in Christ. That's to say your, your daily walk or pattern of life is increasing in Christ-likeness as you continue to put off your old self and put on Christ. They will revile that. Okay, your righteousness in Christ exposes their unrighteousness, and they hate it. But Peter says they'll be put to shame. He goes on and says, It is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. If you're going to suffer, suffer for doing good. Suffer for being identified with Christ, not because you sinned, not because you've done evil. If that should be God's will, he says, we are not constantly suffering from harm or persecution, but it can and does and will happen. And God guarantees it. It is literally God's will for us to suffer sometimes. Some more than others. Peter said, if it should be God's will, that is an expression of the sovereignty of God in suffering. It will not happen, however, unless God allows it. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a promise. Where are you today? Are, are you a stranger to the world? Is the world a stranger to you? What is it that's holding you back from embracing your identity as a stranger in this world? Are you agreeing with the world and not God's word about what is good? These are all good things to think about. We should not just agree that we are strangers intellectually. Like I read it in the Bible, I see it. God says I'm a stranger. Being strangers in this world for the sake of righteousness is not something to be lamented or to run away from. We should be running to it and embracing it as a privilege and a joy to be like our Savior, not run from it. We can't have it both ways. You cannot be of the world and of the kingdom of God. It will not and does not work, and it is, it's either one or the other. There's no in-between. And the world wants to mesh the two. The world wants to agree with a portion of what God says, but not the parts they're uncomfortable with. And we as Christians should not do that. We should not fall into that. And the, the problem is the temptation is to do so because it's hard to be different than the world. It's hard to be a stranger. But that's what God calls us to. The line in the sand is a decision between acknowledging it's hard to be a stranger in this world, yet agreeing with God anyway. And the other side of the line, which is to say God is wrong and the world is right. And where are you? Where are we on that? We don't say, woe is me to being strangers and exiles. We say, praise God for making me a stranger to this world that I used to be a part of that I was imprisoned to. 
praise God for making me a stranger to that, which is darkness, and bringing me into his light. Praise him for saving me out of that, for his glory and for my good, for his glory and for your good, if you are found in Christ. Do you have an intense desire to be a stranger? That's how Peter described those who are zealous for what is good, an intense desire. Do you desire what is good according to God? Or do you run from being a stranger? Uh, We should embrace it because we are called to embrace that. We are called to suffer for Christ. He was our example. Even according to what Peter said, he suffered for us, leaving us an example. He's worthy of being a stranger for. So as we talk about and continue to talk about being strangers and exiles, and he wants to have that picture in our minds, that it's something that we should embrace, not something we should fear or run from. It's a joy ultimately to be a stranger for Christ. I I pray that God will have our mindset be be wrapped around that so that we can have joy in that today and not run from it. I encourage you to embrace being a stranger and exile in this world because this is not our home. We will someday go to be with our Savior where He is. Um, What a joy that will be. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for, for this day. Thank you for your word that we've read this morning. I pray, Father, you give us a heart uh, that desires to embrace being a stranger because of our faith in Christ. You have made us a stranger by adopting us into your family, by taking us out of darkness into your marvelous light. And Lord, as we live our lives every day, Lord, may we not run from being a stranger. May we, in our conversations with family or co-workers, uh, friends who believe that you're wrong, Lord, that we would stand on the truth. Being gentle and respectful, Lord, that we would stand firmly on the truth. Being willing to take on whatever suffering comes because of it, knowing that we don't have to fear it. We don't have to fear the people that might harm us. We don't have to fear the mockery. We don't have to fear anything they can do to us, Father, because we are found in Christ through his work on the cross. Thank you for our eternal life that is being kept for us in heaven. You are a good and gracious and merciful God. We love you so much. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.